If you guys have your Bibles, let's open them up to Exodus. We're ready for chapter 24 tonight. So I'm just going to jump right in. Chapter 24. Last week, 23, um, that was the beginning of the, and 22, 21, as we know, the law was beginning to be given in chapter 20, and we're going through the progression. We're getting to get to the tabernacle tonight in 25, 26, 27. Um, We'll just go until we run out of time. In chapter 24, it says, Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. And so God is going to call Moses up onto the mountain. And as you guys know, this is the um, this is the story or this is the account where Moses is going to go up on the mountain and he's going to end up staying up there for a long extended period of time. And during this time, God is going to give him the law and and all these things that are going to happen in these chapters. And it's not until chapter 32 that Moses is going to come down off the mountain from this trip. And he will have spent a total of, anybody know? 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain. Just like Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness before he was tempted. And so Moses is going to come down. And what, what, what happens when, it's, when he comes down? You guys remember? Well, the golden calf is there, and the golden calf is on the is the, they're there, and they're they're dancing, you know, nakedly around this golden calf, and and pagan worship when he comes down. But his face was glowing from spending forty days in the Shekinah glory of God, and they covered his face with a veil lest the people get the wrong impression. We had a men's retreat one time, and uh, we were at Sky Valley in those days, and uh, there, the, J- Pastor Gerald would lead a hike. Now these are in the old days, right? Pastor Gerald was leading hikes, but um, there was a mountain that that they would climb. They would hike to the top of the mountain. There was a cross on the top of the mountain. And so it was one of the optional activities on Saturday afternoon to lead a hike. The Pastor Gerald would lead a hike up to the top of the mountain and just kind of could see the entire valley from up there and pray up there and come down. And so it was Saturday. And so the optional hike took off and Pastor Gerald led a group of men up onto the top of the mountain. And I didn't go for whatever reason, but I was in the other group. I was in the pagan worship group. And uh, so uh, we had a couple of jokesters in our group, you know, two of them were on staff. And uh, so they, they made this like fake calf and everybody took their shirts off and their shoes off and painted ourselves up the best we could and um, played uh, Born to be Wild. <laughs> Born to be Wild. And we were dancing and acting crazy, running around this calf, Born to be Wild, when Pastor Gerald came back into camp. It was pretty, it was pretty funny. So that's going to happen in chapter 32, but from where we are here from 24, we're not going to get to that. And, you know, in 24, when I was reading through this this week, I I read it. I'm like, well, he goes up on the mountain, but I know he comes down and there's this calf and I'm flipping pages and pages and pages to get to that point. And he's up there for about eight chapters. So really quick note, you can make a note, um, not important, just Nadab and Abihu. These are the two sons of Aaron. Um, uh, Aaron is of the tribe of Levi. He was the priest and his sons were the ones that God smote because they, they offered strange fire before the Lord in Leviticus 10. You make a note there, Leviticus 10 next to verse one. And then, um, and then again, just kind of off topic, really Matthew chapter 17 is a parallel chapter to Exodus 24, because in Matthew, um, 17, uh, Jesus goes up onto the mountain and he's transfigured there. It's kind of glory of God shows up and it happens to be Moses and Elijah are there, Peter, James, and John. And that's where Peter says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. We should make three tabernacles. And then God shows up and tells Peter to shut up and listen to his son. And, um, and the Lord, and then they disappeared. And so this is the kind of parallel chapter, Old Testament chapter to Matthew 17 story. In verse two, it says, and Moses alone shall come near the Lord. But they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So he called for for Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders. But he only wanted Moses to come up and meet with the Lord. So Moses, verse 3, came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the the words which the Lord has said, we will do. We're going to come back to that, that comment in a minute. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain 
and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. So 12 is a number that's very common in the Bible. The Bible says in, Re- in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 that there will be 12 gates on, on New Jerusalem and each gate will have a different name and will have a foundation and a nade. And on the foundation, he also chose, Jesus also chose how many apostles or disciples? 12 and they'll be the names of the 12 apostles and then also will be the names of the 12 tribes and so we see that number 12 tribes of israel 12 apostles and here moses made 12 um, burnt offerings and sacrifices and in verse 6 it says and moses took half the blood and he put it in basins and half the blood and he sprinkled it on the altar and so why did moses separate the blood um you know, today we have the blood of Jesus Christ, and I would argue that um, theologically it, it's separate, right? Because when you first became born again, when you asked Jesus in your heart to be your Lord and Savior, it, it was the blood of Jesus Christ that saved you, right? There is no salvation apart from the shedding of blood, the Bible says. So you, 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 you receive the sacrifice and, and by faith through grace in Jesus and receiving that free gift, it's the blood of Jesus that made it possible for you to go to heaven. Once you're born again and you sin, do you need to get born again again? We don't, right? There's, you're, you're born again. You have a born again experience. And then, and then there's a process that the Bible describes in this cool Christian word called sanctification. Sanctification is the process of being set apart. It's the process of being made holy or of becoming more like Jesus or in our Christian walk. You know, and then you get to Paul, who Peter says at times can be hard to understand. And Paul says things like, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And it's counterintuitive to everything we know about salvation. And, um, but he's talking about um, salvation and, and sanctification. That, that they're really two separate processes. We're saved the day we ask Jesus in our heart. And then begins the process of sanctification, of being set apart, of, being, of growing. Of, you know, and some people may not go very far down the road of sanctification um, that still have what we call fire insurance, right? Or somebody who made a deathbed confession or, you know, they haven't never really been set apart. But, but for us, the goal of life is sanctification. It is that process that we walk through. And every day we need the blood of Jesus Christ. But we don't necessarily plead or call or have the, the necessity of the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ to save us. Because if you died today, you're going to go to heaven. And if we did, if we needed that every day for salvation, not that we don't need it for salvation, don't get that twisted, but that we, um, you know, if you didn't plead it every day or pray for it every day or seek it or, or, or that, that somehow you wouldn't be saved because you didn't do it today, that's, that's, that's not the point. And so there's two sacrifices, the blood of Jesus for those that are saved. It's a process of, of forgiving our sins. Every time you sin, it's the blood of Jesus that continues to wash that sin. And only the blood of Jesus makes us um, clean and white as snow. And so Moses here has two separate offerings of the blood. And then in verse 7, then, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So he just took the word and he just read it. And they said, all that the Lord has done, we will do and be obedient. And so this is a little bit of a mistake on the part of the people here. And they said this twice now. And for you and I, we don't want to make this mistake. These things are in the word so that we don't. And, you know, I think sometimes maybe their intentions are correct. But I think if we're being honest, maybe what they should have said was, Lord, we, we heard you. We desire. Our hearts want to follow you. But we're weak, we're in flesh, we need your help. Will you, will you help us by the Spirit? Will you guide and lead us every day? Will you, will you strengthen us in our weaknesses, our, our, our desire? The Bible says that the flesh, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? And so just like Peter, what did Peter say? Lord, I don't care who denies you, I will never deny you. Isn't that what Peter said? And then what did he hear? Cock-a-doodle-doo! You know, and, and, and Peter was sincere. Peter said, Lord, I will die for you. And I think he meant it when he said it. And I don't take away from Peter in that moment that he wasn't genuinely heartfelt commission, commitment to God, that to Jesus, that he would be there for him. But the reality is in life, even when we feel that way, we, we need, right? We need the blood of Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to be honest with ourselves that it's our intention, but we don't always do our intentions. And maybe what they should have said here was just, Lord, we're committed. We're laid at your feet. We, we want to do what you've called us to do. Help us in doing that. You know, it, it, as, a, as a Sunday school pastor for so many years, and I was telling Jackie and Janet this the other day, you know, and just experience-wise, and so I'm not making it dogma or nothing, but in my experience, 
um, you know, I would have people that would come in Sunday school for, for time to time, and they would sign up. And, and we were always on a rotation basis. So we would do one month on, two months off, one month on, two months off. We'd take three groups of, of people, maybe with a sub, and we would rotate January, February, March. So you'd do January, then the other group would do, what's next? February, and just kidding, then March. And then you'd come back and you'd do the next month. So you'd do every third month and kept everybody fresh and, and somebody could sub, they could cover for each other. And there were usually teams that would cover these, this particular class. And I'd have people come from time to time and, oh, I don't need no break. I'm, I'm just ready to go, gung-ho. I just want to serve Jesus. I just want to do every class every day, every, all the time. And it'd last like three weeks. And they call me. And I, and I, I cleared out a block for them because they were just going to take it and run with it. And then now it's three weeks later, and I got nobody in a rotation. And I'm only one group short. I'm three groups short. And, um, you know, and maybe their intention was good in the beginning. And maybe they're, but, but maybe the wisdom would have said, hey, I, I would like to do it. My heart is to do it. My intention is it sounds really good. I really want to serve the Lord. But let's, let's, let's see how it goes. Let's, let's, let's hope the Lord helps me to continue with that heart. And, you know, and we'll take it, we'll take it a step at a time. And after that happened so many times, I kind of stopped letting people do that and started you know, seeing what would happen. Because unfortunately, so many times our our intentions are right, but not there. And then what did the people do? Did they do what they said here? And that's how we know this is true. They're not even close. Let's let's look what they said again in verse 7. All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Everything the Lord commanded, we're just going to do it all the time. Every time, every day, all the places. Like, it wouldn't be long, it wouldn't be 40 days before they're dancing naked around a, a golden calf. And in verse 8, it says, And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people. Yeah, Moses knew they needed the blood. And he sprinkled it on the people, and he said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to these words. And so, sprinkling the blood on the people, again, what does that remind us of? What is that a symbol of? What does that represent? Always the blood of Jesus, right? And the blood of Jesus sprinkled on you, sprinkled on me. Um, as you guys know, in the, in the mercy seat or in the altar or in the, um, in the place of sacrifice, they would take the, the blood of the lambs and in the Old Testament, and you would come and ceremonially you would take your sins and you would place them upon the altar and the priest would sprinkle the blood of the lamb upon your sins, which would temporarily cover your sins. And that was the way that sins were atoned for. It's all an obvious picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the two guys on the road to Emmaus, he took them back to Moses and he showed them all the places in the scripture concerning himself. And as we read through the technical law of of Moses, that's laborious and, you know, kind of work our way through it. You can't help but just see Jesus, Jesus, Jesus and every aspect of it. In verse nine, it says, then Moses went up also. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. That's exactly who God called to come up, right? And it says, And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire, stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So we get this amazing picture where they see God, and everything that's above them is under God. And that's just a picture for your life and my life. That anything that's above us, anything that's heavy, anything that weighs us down, doesn't matter what it is in your life, in my life, it, it, it's, it's below God's feet. And God can handle it. But we get this picture of God, and it says um, that they saw God. Now, bear with me just one minute. I, I had last week, I had this chapter all plugged in my Bible, and I, I took those out, and I forgot to put them back in today. I just realized, so I'm going to thumb through this. But I want to bring us to a couple places, because I want to unpack this just for a second. It says that they saw God. Does it not? Or is that just my Bible? It says they saw the God of Israel. Do you remember last week we studied about an angel that they, that they saw also, or that an angel that God said he was going to send an angel, and we, we, we made a decision on who and what that angel was? What was that? Who was that? It was Jesus. It's a Christophany. It's a, um, a, a theophany. It's a type of Jesus. It's an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't born in a manger. Um, that wasn't the beginning of his existence in a manger in Bethlehem. He, he existed before time and will exist after time. His plan of salvation was laid out before the foundations of the world. And Jesus always was. He took on flesh. He took on humanity for your sake and my sake. But... But Jesus was still well and alive and around in the Old Testament as well. And we see him many, many, many times in the Old Testament. And so the, the simple solution for me is the Bible says no man will see God at any time and live, right? 
Very simple. I, I'm going to show you a couple, just just so you know I'm not lying. Not that I would ever, ever lie to you. But um, in, in John chapter 1, if you want to try to keep up with me, you can. I'm flipping today. Normally I got all this stuff marked, but in John chapter 1, Verse 17 and 18, it says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through who? Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we always have that model. When, when, when Jesus went on to the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Jesus represents the great grace. Moses represents the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. Jesus said all of the law and the prophets are summed up in this one word, love. Um, all the way through, we have these three. In the, in the book of Revelation, God's going to bring back two witnesses from the Old Testament. Okay, most, the, the Bible is very clear that one of them is Moses. People argue about who the other one is. I think it's pretty clear that it's Elijah. And again, you have that same um, Mount of Transfiguration trilogy that we see all the way throughout Scripture where the law, the prophets, and grace is represented there. And so, um, or the law and the prophets at the, at the temple, but Jesus will be there as well. And then verse 18, John chapter 1, No one has seen God at any time. What? Isn't Jesus God? Is Jesus God? <laughs> we got serious, serious theology problems. If that's not an emphatic, yes, I'm, I'm preaching to myself or something. There's a wall right here because that's that's in Mormonville. That is so important, and I preach it all the time that Jesus is God. It's very important for us to understand that, to 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 know, to have the right Jesus. Jesus is God. So John here at the introduction and the first chapter of a gospel that's going to lay out the life of jesus he tells us that no man has seen god jesus said if you've seen me you've seen the father and so in, in, in essence we right we've we've am i confusing you yet we're going to go in a circle here so we know in the trinity right the trinity is is three persons in one the great shema of israel hero israel the lord our god the lord is one one of the things I think I shared with you guys last year that when you go to Israel and you talk to the people and they love Christians, Christians are the hand that feed them. They understand that globally the United States is a friend of Israel. And, and even if we're not sometime politically, they understand that, that it's Christians in the United States that stand with Israel. They understand and appreciate this and they treat us really, really well. But one of the things that you'll find behind closed doors when you talk to some of the Jews is that they'll say, well, you know what the problem we have with you Christians are? Is that you have three gods. And that's, that's paganism. That's pluralism. That's pagan. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Because they don't understand nor receive our trinity. Okay? And so it's, it, it is very difficult to understand. But we do have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit laid out in the scriptures. And you say, well, one plus one plus one equals three. But one times one times one equals one. So, you know, you've heard all the analogies. None of them do God justice. The one I like the best is myself because the Bible says that I'm made in the image of God. I'm, I'm, I'm body, mind, and soul, right? If, if you lop my head off here today, the, the flesh is going to fall down. But who am I? Am I going to fall down there? No, I'm, I'm going to depart. I'm going to separate from the flesh. So we got at least two. Okay, and then we have a third that, that we're, we're created in the image of God. You have things like, like water people often use because water can be a liquid, it can be a gas, or it can be a solid. It's not three waters, it's one water and it's in three parts. You have an egg. An egg has three distinct parts that are unique of each other. A shell, a yolk, and a white. But it doesn't make three eggs. It makes one egg with three distinct parts. Um, so, so the father, you know, and, and it's interesting too because I think like, we're, we're going to get to heaven. And because of this thinking, you know, in, in my mind anyways, it's like Jesus is over here hanging out with this group. And then the father's like up in the throne and we get to go hang out over here with the father. And then the Holy Spirit is maybe like down at the beach and we get to go surf with the Holy Spirit or something. And, you know, the father is like this white haired guy, you know, like the, the pictures of this, you know, this, this Greek mythology where you see like this Zeus looking character where his eyes are like you can't really see him. And he's old looking. He's got the white hair and the white beard. And this is our impression of the father. 
And so, but maybe in reality, you know, first of all, we, we're not going to understand. This reality is we will not understand God in His essence, in His nature, until we, we get to heaven. But I, I think that our idea of God and, and our, our, our terms, or maybe some of our ideas are going to get completely blown out of the water when, when we breathe our last, and the Bible says at that point we'll know Him as we're known. You know, because the Bible says that God, God, God wants to hide you under, under His wings. Does that mean that God has feathers? When we get to heaven, is God going to have feathers? God says He measures the universe with the span of His hand. Does that mean that the God of the universe and the creator of all things is going to have a hand like you and I have a hand? Probably not. Maybe. Because He created us in His image, but He created His Son in His image. But Father God, the God of the universe, I don't exactly think He's going to have a hand like you and I have a hand. He's doesn't, definitely not going to have feathers. I hate to burst your bubble, but he's probably not going to have this big, beautiful white beard and long hair. He, he, he's God, you know, and, and, and even in, in the times where... So one of the cool stories in the Bible, we'll get to it in the Old Testament. We're going to get to it here in, in chapter 33 of Exodus. But Moses says to God, God gives Moses a blank check. Two blank checks are issued in the Bible. Okay, Moses gets one. Who got the other one? Solomon. Okay, two blank checks issued in the Bible. God comes up. And I know all of you are going like, I'll rub that genie bottle real hard. Like, I want one. I would love one. I always pretend I get one. I don't know about you guys, but you know, like you pretend you're Superman or Batman, not me. I pretend like God shows up and gives me a blank check like Moses and Solomon, and what would I do with it? I can remember standing at the wailing wall and just same thing, same heart. But anyways, sorry. Um, Moses gets a blank check. And God says, Moses, whatever you ask, I'll do for you. And what does Moses ask for? We know what Solomon asked for. What did Moses ask for? Moses said, Lord, I want to see you. I want to see you. Solomon got it right. And Moses absolutely got it right. Why? Because what do you want to do when you really, in your heart, you really love somebody? You want to see them. That's the bottom line. That is, that is just the bottom line. You know, how many of you guys have dated? I see some of you guys married in here. Were you, were you happy when you were dating just talking on the phone all the time probably not probably what you desired more than anything was to see them was to spend time with them was to be next to them and when you love somebody you want to see them you want to see them you want to be next to them you want to spend time with them and Moses wanted to see God because he loved him and so when when Moses received the blank check he said God I want to see you and God said to Moses as I I'm gonna, it was going to go through he said well Moses for a little problem no man can see God and live. And so we know we saw Jesus. We've established that. We know we've seen angels of the Lord. Well, Moses saw Melchizedek, which is Jesus. We have Jesus appearing in the Old Testament multiple times and seen by men. But God the Father has never been seen by man. No man can see God and live. And so, so God grants Moses' request, and it says that he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And it says that, that he covered him as he went by, and, and that Moses got to see what part of God? You guys remember the story? He got to see his, his train or his glory. We might say his wake. So like as a boat goes by, if the boat goes by, you never saw the boat. All you saw was the, the effect, effect on the water as the boat went by. And that's all Moses got to see of the Lord. He got to see the wake or the train or the, the effect as God went by and God covered him. I think some translations say that he saw the back of God. And I don't think that's a really good translation. I don't necessarily know that he saw the back of God. Not that God has a back. Not like you and I would think of back with certain muscles in it and that kind of thing. But um, he saw the, the train of God's robe. He saw the wake, the aftermath as God went by. Because he couldn't see God and live at any time, right? So we'll go through these because i got to mark. I'll go through them a little quicker. 1 Timothy 6.16. You can mark that next to John 1.18. 1 Timothy 6.16. Just says the same thing to reprove a point. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be cleared against them. That's not it. That's 2 Timothy. Didn't I say 1 Timothy? 6.16. Am I right? 
who alone is immortality dwelling in inapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see to whom be the glory and everlasting power. So now we have John. Now we have Timothy telling us that no man has seen God. And here um, Timothy tells us who alone has immortality dwelling in inapproachable light. Let's try first John chapter four for the last one. First John four in uh, in uh, four sixteen. And we and we have known and believed that believe the love of God, the love that God has for us. God is love, and and He who abides in Him loves. And God in Him. Why can't I read today? Um, Oh, verse 12, not 16. I was stuck on 16. Verse 12. No one has seen God. First John 4, 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected. So three times, John tells us twice. Timothy tells us once. God tells us himself in Exodus that no man can see God and live at any time. So now we have this major contradiction in the Bible. Now you all can go home because obviously it's not true. There's a problem. There's a contradiction because here it says that what? They saw the God of Israel and they were under his feet as it, feet as it were paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So obviously we, we put two and two together. We don't have contradictions. We, we have things that God allows us to solve. And so obviously what hap- what's happening here is they're seeing Jesus. Okay. They're seeing, um, they're seeing the God of Israel, which is Jesus. And then, um, In verse 12, it says, and the, and the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and there and be there. And I will give you tab, t- tablets of stone and the law and commandments, which I have written that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any man has difficulty, let him go to them. So that's not Ben-Hur, contrary to popular opinion. There is a guy in the Bible named Hur. I'm not really sure who Ben-Hur is, but that's not him. In verse 14, it says, And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has difficulty, let him go to them. And so Moses went up, instructed the people that there would be a... um, you know, some leaders left behind that could solve problems, that could act as judge, as Moses often would. And so he left Aaron and her in charge, and he headed up the mountain. Aaron and her did not do a very good job as being left in charge. So that's why I never leave Chad in charge when I leave. Just kidding. With what? In, in respect to what? In regards to what? trying to find that I, I don't know he didn't I mean he didn't go up on the mountain because God said no one could go up only Moses went up and so he says he left Aaron and her down to deal with the people so I guess since it doesn't tell us what happened to Joshua we could only assume he either stayed with Aaron and her he, he definitely didn't go up the mountain there was nobody on the mountain with God because God wouldn't allow that and and Moses went up by himself he had the 70 elders they all got to see God he allowed them to be a part of that and then um, so I don't know the Bible doesn't say Maybe Joshua um, had a date. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know what happened to Joshua. And it goes on, and it says in verse 15, where are we at? 15, 16? 15. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. So we, we know, Mark, that, that I'm not sure what happened to Joshua, but I don't do know that only Moses went up. And then in verse 16, now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. Maybe he's a picture of the rapture, and that's why he's missing there. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. You know, what's interesting is seven days before God showed up. So Moses went up there and, you know, worshiped the Lord and spent time. And and he waited and he waited and he waited on the Lord. And we know that that's a, a principle of Christianity to wait on the Lord. And in verse 17, it says, The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire 
on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and wept up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, you know that, uh, again, in, in describing God, in, in using words to describe God, there's, there's a place we're going to read in a chapter or so, and it's going to say that God um, repented, or at the end, after, and when we get to 32, that God repented. He was going to destroy the people for dancing around that calf. Moses interceded for the people. And then it says that God repented. And, and again, that's kind of like a, a tweak, a red flag, because how can God repent? Um, uh, some translations, the newer translations, don't use the word repent there. They use the word relent, which I think is a little better. But still, it, it gives the impression that God either changed his mind. And the only way you can change your mind is if you don't know what you're going to do in the future. And then, and then you, you make a plan and then you change it. But if I know what I'm going to do in the future, then I can't change my mind because I will already do what I knew I was going to do in the future, right? So, um, so, so again, but when we describe God, God has a wing that he wants to keep you under. God measures with the span of his hand. These are um, what we call anthropomorphic terms. They're, 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 they're human terms to describe a holy God. And, and just the reality is they just don't do it justice. There is no um, way to describe the things that are happening. Paul, Paul was caught up into the third heaven, and Paul said the things that he heard would be unlawful for him to try, to try to describe those things. We know that John, the Apostle John, was also caught up into heaven, and he did do his best job according to the revelation of the Holy Spirit to describe some of the things that he saw in heaven. But we, we know that, that there's just indescribable things, and, and words don't, there's no words for them. There's no understanding for this kind of stuff. So the Bible does the best job to do. For example, when you get in the book of Revelation, um, it says that John, the revelator, was, was caught into the spirit, caught up in the spirit and taken to the future, taken to, the, the, to see the events unfolding. So maybe he was witnessing a nuclear war and he saw planes and he saw boats and he saw nuclear bombs and mushroom clouds. And, and he uses words to explain airplanes. How, how is John... At the you know at the in the you know at the in AD a hundred, in the first century, how is he going to describe an airplane? He's going to use a term like bird because those are the things that he understands that fly in the air. So he describes them as birds. Was it birds that he was seeing that were dropping things out of the sky? Now I know birds drop things out of the sky, but they usually don't result in mushroom clouds. Um, so he uses terms like. You know, and, and again, we have certain terms biblically that 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 are human terms to try to describe a holy God. And they don't always do it justice, and so that's kind of what we run into in some of these places. In verse, in chapter twenty-five, two weeks in a go in a row, you guys are going to get a lesson on giving. So I hope you brought your checkbooks tonight. And and again, I didn't plan this. This is a beauty of teaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You just cover it when the Bible covers it. So. It says in chapter 25, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Okay? For everyone who gives it will willingly, with his heart, you shall take my offering. And, and this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet, thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skin, dried red badger skins, and acacia wood. Oil for the light of the spices, the anointing oil, for the sweet incense, onk stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So um, he says, let the people, and he commands that Moses have the people bring an offering. What's interesting is he, he says that, that those that do it willingly, he will bless. Does it not say that? Okay. I want to tell you the principle of, of, of tithing and of giving and the principles, plural, of God are, are true Old and New Testament. Because I believe maybe I'm the only one that's guilty of this. And maybe that's why it kind of sways the way I teach. But maybe you guys are too. You, you, you do get an impression, you can catch an impression that God was different in the Old Testament than He is in the New Testament. And, and, and the Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then you run into places like this you run into places in the Old Testament where, where you really get down to what God wants from his people. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's what he tells them in Deuteronomy. 
And then you come to the New Testament, the crux of the New Testament, what Jesus is the greatest of all commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And we, we think that's a New Testament concept. And when in reality, we find out that God's heart was for his people to love him with their, all their heart, mind, and soul from Adam all the way to Revelation, to the end of the world. That's God's will. That's God's heart. And God never changed in that. But you see this God of wrath in the Old Testament that had teenagers stoned when they were rebellious and, and that, 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 that is different in the New Testament, right? Or today that we live under grace, we don't see those same things. And so on some of those respects, we, we get the impression that God's heart changed somewhere, that God is different from the Old and the New Testament. And, and it just couldn't be farther than the truth. One of the things that helps me... Um, well, number one, the, the law was a schoolmaster. It was necessary to lead up to Jesus Christ. It was all pointing to Jesus Christ. And, and number two is that he, he was, again, he was starting with, at a starting point in order to bring us to a finish point. And, and you can't, he couldn't, he didn't have, the, you know, to start where he wanted us to finish. He had to start somewhere to get us there and they needed the law and, and they were dealing with, with, with the pagan nations and pagan people and, you know, two million slaves that spent 400 years in Egypt probably with a very low mentality and, and, and surrounded by pagan practices and pagan principles and people that, as we know, were a stiff-necked people that eventually all died in the wilderness because they just never did get it. And, and so kind of helps me with the you know, the progression as we go through. But again, what's interesting is that, you know, again, on the area of giving now specifically, again, you, you get this argument from people that tithe is an Old Testament law and not a New Testament law. But here we see, and then that we, read, we read in Corinthians where the Bible says that each one should give as he purposes in his own heart. Okay? And that each one, the principle of giving all the way through Genesis to Revelation is willingly. It, it's, you know, it really, if, if you struggle with giving, um, you, you, there's no reward for you. If you give it because you feel like you have to and you don't like it when you do it and you feel like it's, it's wrong or it's not biblical and you just do it anyways, there, there's, no, there's no joy. There's no, and, and if you do it because you have to, you do it because, you know, then, then, then you miss the blessing that God has intended for you. And where God wants to get us all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, all his people in giving, he wants us to give, he wants you to give, and he wants you to do it willingly with a glad heart. The Bible says that we should give cheerfully. And that word cheerfully is audible laughter. Ah, ha, 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 ha. That's, that's, that's how you translate that word. We should give. Ah, ha, 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 ha. So every time we drop in, it should just tickle us so down to the bone that, you know, that we just laugh out loud. And God says he will bless it. He will, he will, he will give it. And I, I want to share with you guys. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to just get it firsthand. Out of the sheep's mouth. Bah. Rather than mine. First Corinthians chapter 9. Let's look at verse number 12. No, not 12. I'm sorry. See what happens when I don't mark my Bible? Beforehand, it's 2 Corinthians. That's why I couldn't find it. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse number 1. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Now concerning the ministering, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here, you guys. I, I, but now concerning the ministering to the saints in its superflu superfluous? superfluous and it's superfluous for me to write to you I'm not feeling well tonight for I know your willingness about which I boast to you of the Macedonians and that Acacia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the, the majority yet I have sent the brethren lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect that I said you may be ready lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared we may not mention you should be ashamed 
of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not of grudging obligation. So God here, Paul's instructing according to the Holy Spirit. He wants he's going to come and receive the gift and he wants it to be a matter of generosity and not grudging obligation. So um, that, that's the heart of God. And we're going to go on. I'm going to read again a, a little bit further. But here was the setup. Paul, um, the city that Paul was getting ready to head to had offered to, to, to receive and, and, and come up with an offering and give it to Paul when he got there. So when Paul got there, he was bringing some new believers, non-believers, people with him. And, and when he got there expecting and needing this gift to do the ministry that he was doing, and he said to the people, he said, hey, do you have that money that you said you would give me? And they don't have it, and then they're mad, and now they feel like they have to come up with it. And there's this fight, and there's this grudging spirit that, that the non-believers would witness, and that the world would witness, that, that Paul wanted to just deal with that. So he said, I'm sending beforehand, I'm sending you word to get the gift ready, so that when I come, we can receive the gift that, that, that you had agreed to give, and that, 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 you know, and that you give it with the right spirit. That you give it willingly, with gratitude, not with begrudging obligation. And then look at verse number six of Second Corinthians chapter nine. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, how many of you guys speak Chinese? Nobody? Okay, good. Don't worry, because that's not in Chinese. That's in English. If you sow sparingly, how will you reap? Do I need to explain sowing and reaping or we got that concept? What you sow, what you plant is what the fruit that's going to grow on, on, on your branches, right? So if you sow sparingly, how do you reap? If you sow bountifully or generously, how do you reap? Biblical principle, okay? And then it says in verse 7, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, not, not because out of grudge or the wrong heart or because you have to, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay? And then it says, and God is able to make grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. So, so God is able then to make all grace abound towards you. So God is able then to pay the bill that you didn't pay to give abundantly, to give faithfully, to give generously. Right? And then he goes on and he gives us this warning. You know how many times I preach this? And people say, oh, well, that's pretty self-serving, Pastor Chris. You keep, you know, give to the, you know. But it, it, it's, you will be blessed. That's just the bottom line. You know, I always premise it like, well, I don't care if you give it here because it's for you. And, you know, but, but the tithe biblically is where you're being fed. Where do you receive bread? That's where the tithe goes. So if you go somewhere else, God bless you. Give wherever you go. Give unto the Lord because you cannot outgive God. And it's not a matter of, of self-serving. It's a matter of what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches over and over again. Go for yourself and read it. And, and, and because I tell you, Christian people, I argue with Christian people my whole life, lots of them all over the place. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. Oh, well, I, I, just, I just can't tithe because my bills are getting behind. And I tell them, man, I can't afford not to tithe. And, and God's going to get it one way or the other. And, and Malachi tells us, um, Haggai actually tells us, he says um, that, that you, you put it in a bag with holes in it. And, 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 when, and, when we, and, and you know, Malachi tells us that we, we robbed God. And he says, where have you robbed God? He says, in the areas of tithes and offerings. And, and, and when, we, when we don't give, I really believe that... Um, I don't know, maybe God's hand of protection, I guess maybe is the best way to put it, maybe might be removed over some of our things. I, I had a testimony in this church about a year ago, well, standing there, there, and over there. Within a week, three different people came up to me, and two were telling me these terrible, horrible financial stories of hospital bills, um, major appliances in the house breaking, car breaking, things falling apart. Two separate families. Neither one of them um, give anything to the Lord. Third family who doesn't make a lot of money struggles but gives faithfully unto the Lord in the same week, in the same short period of time, came up to me and told me, you'd never believe the raise I got at work. And I was like, 
I just, it was, I thought it felt like it was the Lord. I felt like the way that it happened, they didn't know each other, they didn't put it together, just independently decided to share with me two woe stories of people from people that just don't believe in giving and tithing and one who does and how God blessed. You know, I feel like, you know, maybe the, the, all the calamity that was going on, that we save our money to protect all this calamity, it says here that God is able, and the biblical principle is that God will take care of it. Now, does God need your money? Does God want your money? So first of all, the question was singular. Does God need your money? And if you believe God needs your money, then, then you're in the wrong church, you're in the wrong place. And if the preacher ever preaches that God needs or needs your money, seriously, is, have you guys read the book of Revelation? Is, is the book of Revelation going to come to pass if you do or don't give? Right? The end of the world's going to... That's me. Hey! Didn't tell you guys to turn your phones off in church. Who calls me at 8 o'clock on a Wednesday night? Huntington Park. Um, sorry about that. So it, it, it can't be a matter of, you know, you, know, you, hear, you hear stuff like this. And again, it breaks God's heart, I believe. It breaks my heart. You know, um, Pastor Chuck warned us against this as a Calvary Chapel movement a long time ago because you'll hear stories like, if you don't give, this radio station is going to go off the air. If you don't give, this, this program, this children's program, and kids in Africa are never going to eat. A ton of those guys, all them whack jobs, every one of them. Until they caught him in a hotel with hookers, right? And that's a true story. That's just a true story, you know? Um, so, so... That, that, that's, that can't be the God that we serve. So then why does the Bible talk so much about money? Why does the, the scriptures lay principles out like this? It's not for God. And God does use it. He does use it for his glory. He does use it for his kingdom. It is necessary. This church is necessary that, that we give as a church so we can keep the lights on. But, but what happens is God's programs, if God's in it, he's going to do it with or without our help. He's going to do the work here in this church and in other churches and in ministries with or without us. But if once we give willingly and sparingly and and bountifully, there's just a principle that takes place. I've already explained God's math doesn't work. So you do your math. You have $300. You have $275 worth of bills. So if you want to take the 10%, which is just a good standard, and I don't care if you take more or less of 10%, the Bible says here, you know, in, in, in Corinthians where we just read, let each one purpose in his heart and give willingly. But let's say you, you're a 10% guy like I am. That's me. It's just a good standard. I try to give above and beyond. I give 10% is what I call a tithe. Anything above and beyond that is a love offering. And then beyond the love offering, maybe some sacrificial giving where it just really hurts. But, you know, if I can only afford $25, but I feel like I, I, I want to give $30 as a standard... So I hold the last five to pay my bills or I wait till the end of the month to make sure that, that, that all the bills are paid. By the time I get to the end of the month, I promise you, I, I don't have that 25, don't even have that $25 left. And, and then I don't even, you know, and then I, then I owe another 50 for something else that went on. Because again, the principle, we've missed the principle if we wait till the end because the principle is first fruits, willing, giving, and we give from the first fruits and we give to the Lord. Um, my wife came home from work today. And, and she shared a short story with me. And she didn't know I was sharing. And I didn't know either, really. And the, this wasn't a message about giving. I want to get into the tabernacle, which is really what we're talking about here. But we, we crossed it. So I wanted to cover it. But um, we have a family that's here from Tooele. And they, they moved to California to, um, for a business where the husband's working in a business. The business shut down in California. And so the same business had to move to North Carolina. <laughs> And so um, while the family was here, they, uh, one of the things he does is he gives um, every year at Christmas to, to a needy family. And he sponsored some needy families or some, you know, in our church. And it's always the most generous gifts. It's tons and tons of stuff. It's a big deal. It's what he wants to do every year. And, and those that have received that know what I'm talking about. Well, this year he's in North Carolina and he, 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 his deal is at Christmas time, he wants to help a family. He's been praying and asking God to show him which family to help and how to help it. And the way that he does it is he puts a separate savings account away and, and he puts a little bit of money into it all year long until he gets to Christmas. And it's separate, it stays by itself. And then he takes that money and he uses it at Christmas time to bless a family. 
Well, the, the, the business left California and went to North Carolina, and he took five business partners with him, young kids and their salesmen, and they're selling this product that he has. And they, they have not had one sale yet in, in the whole time that they've been in North Carolina. And he's paying all the rent for these five guys. He's, they know they're there on commission. They're working. If they sell these things, they'll make money. If they don't, they won't. They haven't sold not one unit yet. And he's paying rent for these five guys and himself and his and he's married and, um, and 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 it's all out of his personal savings account. You know, his personal savings account is almost gone and and nothing happening. And and he has this Christmas savings account that he puts in year this year uh, all year long to save. And so he he had a job um, where he was going to go try to sell a job. And he he went to the appointment and he drove way out of his way to go to the appointment and they canceled on him. So he, he, was, he was heading home, and, and he wanted to go to Starbucks, but instead of going to the one he always goes to, you guys know how these stories go, he ends up like one that just doesn't make sense for him to be at this particular one because there's other ones. And so he's there. He's in his parking lot. In, he's in the parking lot in the car, and he, and he observes a gentleman. And the gentleman is like pacing back and forth. Like he looks like he's going to go, and then he turns around, and he comes the other way, and he's like, what is wrong with that guy? And the guy's just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So the guy comes over and knocks on his window. And, and, and our guy here from Tooele rolls the window down and he says, can I help you? And he's like, I know you're going to think this is really strange. I'm sorry, but the Holy Spirit told me to come talk to you. Would explain the pacing. God was telling him to go, talk, go knock on the car, the window of this car. And he was, he was struggling with being obedient to what God told him. Has God ever told you to do something like that? And you weren't really sure? Go, go, go talk to that guy. Go pick that person up. Go do this. You know, be there. Do that. Go open up that mailbox and scream, Jesus loves you in the mailbox. You know, and the Holy Spirit's telling you, you're like, that's stupid. People are going to be weird. And, well, he's struggling with, with, so he does it. He knocks on the window. And so they start talking. And um, he says, you're not, are you, you know, the guy says, oh, well, the Holy Spirit told me to come. He's like, is there any chance you're a Christian and that makes any sense to you? And he's like, yeah, actually, I'm a Christian. That makes sense to me. And so, uh, so they start talking. And, and, and the guy just is telling him all these crazy woe stories about, about how he loves Jesus and serves Jesus, but he doesn't have anything. He's struggling. He lost his job. He has kids. He has a family. And, and God speaks to his heart and says, that's the guy. That's the guy that I want you to give that savings, that Christmas savings account to. So they, true story, just happened. They together walk across the street and the bank, just coincidentally, the bank that he keeps this savings fund in is a Wells Fargo. And there happens to be a branch directly across the street from that Starbucks. They walk over there. His personal account now is, is dwindling. They haven't sold a job yet since they've been in North Carolina. And he, he, he gives the money that's in that savings account to that, to that, to that guy, knows that it's the Lord and, and is just faithful and obedient and, and gives the money to that guy. So that was like a week ago after being there for a long time and selling no jobs. They sold $180,000 worth of jobs in the last three, last two weeks. Three jobs, six, they're big jobs. That's why they don't sell them. But 60000 a piece, they sold three jobs in the last three weeks. 60, 60 grand a piece, $180,000 worth of jobs in the last weeks. After that, after taking, you know, and, and just, and you know, some people have a gift. And I think this, this particular individual is, is different because not everybody has this gift. You know, we, we got a very large gift to start this church. And it was one of those individuals that just had that gift of generosity. But there is a gift. And, and there's a ministry that, that, that people have that they just give super generously. They give when it hurts. And, and, and then God keeps filling it up. And they have a gift of generosity. And as long as they give it out, God just keeps filling it up and filling it up. And so pretty cool story about giving. Um, didn't have five minutes to tell that story because I want to get through this next section. Um, but anyways, j- just the principle of trusting the Lord, you guys, really, honestly, it's a matter of faithfulness and trusting the Lord and just, you know, and, and I, always, I always challenge people in this area is that, you know, if you won't take it from me, then, then, then do this. Pray. Ask God. Talk to God. And, and do whatever God tells you to do. You know, if there's an amount, if there's a, a, a whatever. And then again, getting to that point where we give hilariously. You know, you know, for this, this guy who experienced that and where he's, what he's feeling today. You think next time he, he gets in a situation where he has some money and he feels like he's supposed to give it away to somebody he's never met before. He had no idea it was going to be a stranger. And, and, and you know, one of the things I didn't tell in the story was the guy told him 
he said, he, said that, he said that his pastor was praying for him, and his pastor told him that he feels like it's a stranger that's going to meet his needs. And so, but, you know, for the, for the gentleman who gave the money, the next time he gets in that situation, what's going to happen? It's going to get a little easier, right? It's going to get a little bit easier to trust the Lord this time because I've seen it. And, 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 then, and then when you give it and, and God fills it in, and then what happens the next time? It was even a little easier than number two. And then number three and number four and number five and number six. And by the time you get on a certain point, it just, it just is not human nature now. And you don't even have to think about it because you've done it and you've seen God work so many times that, that it's just, you just do it. So, so the, the principle is the same and that God wanted a willing offering. Okay. And then just so you know, we're going to get to the point. And I don't know if you guys remember this, you've read this before, but Moses is actually going to come to the people and this is what he's going to tell them. Stop giving. We'll read it in a minute. Stop giving. We got enough. Like you guys have given so generously and so much that we have enough and we, we have what we need to build the tabernacle, the temple or the tabernacle at the time, not temple, the ark, the everything, the stuff we need. We're good. Stop giving. You know, it, it said, I forget which group it is, but I'm sure you guys have heard this before too, but um, that if, if the church, just the Christian church, just tithed, just tithed, not, not a love offering, not a gift above, just tithed that every ministry in the United States, every ministry around the world would, would be debt free. There wouldn't be a, a, a hungry person we could feed. We could address the world's hunger problems. That, that if it just, if the church itself tied, that, that the whole problems are taken care of as far as finances for the church, for the, for the nation, we could feed the homeless. We could, so much work could be done just on the simple fact of, of the church giving. You know, um, the Mormon church, for example, and, and they force their people to give and they miss the principle of um, being something you, you choose to do or not do, something that you have to do willingly or there's no reward. And I don't want you to rob yourself or God. So if you don't give off the first fruits and if you don't give it because you want to give it and you believe in this principle of giving, then go buy yourself a cheeseburger, go buy yourself another thing for your mantle or go put it down on your, your building credit card bills um, and you and you're put it in your bag with holes in it because that's eventually what happens when we don't give. But again, if you can't give it from those principles, then, then you're wasting your time. First fruits, off the top, in faith and and cheerfully in, in believing and then and then God will bless it. Um, what was I talking about? I know I was talking about giving, but there was something specific I was getting to. Oh yes, yes, yes. Thank you. That that they gave it all, and so I, I forget what the amount is. But once you, once you do the math on on the the all the gold that was necessary and all the stuff that was necessary. That, that they had given so much. I was starting to talk about the, the, um, the Mormon church. Maybe that's why I lost my thing. It has the Holy Spirit protecting me from saying something. But, um, y- you know, their, their budget, and, and this is conservative, but their budget last year was in the trillions. Trillions. That's with a T. One of these big ones. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but, but again, you know, you, you have a smaller church than us that, that has trillions of trillions of dollars of resources. And, you know, just, just to prove that point that what, what the, whatever it was, there's the Barna group or one of the other study groups that says, if, if just, we just gave our simple 10% that God's, God's work would be done. All right. Um, Verse number 10. Two minutes, guys. It's 830, so we'll be done. I'm sorry. I want to talk too much on. Verse 10, it says, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, its cubit, and half its width shall be a cubit, and half its height. So I'll tell you what we're going to do. Um, we're, we're not going to just read through all these measurements and things. We're just going to talk about them for a minute. Hey, Chad, will you, will you throw up Apple TV for a second, please? Um, let's look at verse number 22. We're going to jump down to verse number 22. And there I will meet with you and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the cherub, which is which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Hey, turn back 
chapter 25. I want you to look at verse number 8 really quick. And it says that I may dwell among them. Right? Chapter 8, verse 25. So, so the principle of, um, of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and then the principle of tithing in the New Testament. I'm sorry, not tithing. The principle of um, the temple that was there until Jesus, until Jesus died, or until A.D. 70, technically, was that God's, God's presence... There we go. God's presence would be with the people. So that, that was the whole idea of the Holy of Holies, right? So you have this tabernacle. So this is, this is a kind of an outline of basically what we're going to read about in the next couple chapters. This is, you know, the thing about the tabernacle, it, it had, was tons of gold. And so, you know, it, it did have some fanciness to it, but it wasn't, you know, immensely ornate. It was very small. The, the actual tent part of, of, the, um, of the Holy of Holies was only 15 by 15 feet. So it's only 15 feet wide, 15 feet long. It's about half the size of half this room. So this room's 25 or 50 by 35. So it's only 15 by 15. It would fit in this room besides the height. Um, and then in the inside, you have the outer courts, the inner room, and then the Holy of Holies there um, in the back part there. Where you can just see a little cutout part there. And so God's going to lay this out. And then in the back of the Holy of Holies, so you come into the outer courts, you see all the... Um, um, places there those tables that are there around the outside is where they would do the animal sacrifices they would put the sheep upon that the brazen altar you know we sing that song take me past the brazen altar into the holy place so we have the holy place and then we have the holy of holy so the first part of the actual tent is the holy place and inside there you have multiple items um, inside the holy place i can see this one a little better you have the altar of incense that's on the inside there, the lampstand, um, the menorah, which was a picture. Jesus would be the light of the world. You can't really see it, but it's, it would have been in the inside of the, uh, of the um, holy place. And then um, the table of showbread and then the veil or the, you know, the veil is that big curtain that would separate the holy of holy. So it's number three on there. And so you go into the first part and then in the very back, just in the back few feet, you have the, the, the veil or this big curtain, 18 inches long in the temple when they built, when they didn't know, when God no longer dwelt in the tabernacle and he moved into the temple, that curtain was 18 inches thick and only the high priest would go behind it once a year to offer uh, atonement for the people. And, and they, they would say, tradition says they would tie a rope with bells around his ankle so that if he, he went in there and he wasn't right before God and he entered the holy place and fell over dead, that they wouldn't have to go in and keep piling up dead people going into the holy, of, holy place after him. They would be able to pull him out. So that's an actual um, picture of, of somebody. There's several. We actually had one at the church. You guys see the chair that's on the outside of the thing there with the electrical box sticking up. So um, that's just a replica. It's a tourist attraction. Um, probably, you know, pretty similar in some respects. I don't see the tables along the outside where the sacrifice. But again, you have you have the brazen altar there and you have you have some stuff there. And you go inside and they they build the same artifacts. what happened shows that I'm on here alright that's the Lord telling me let's go home let's fade 35 we're not going to finish that chapter because there's just too much there's too much in the ark you know the cool thing is that you know the ark is about it's a picture of Jesus this whole thing is a picture of Jesus and the cool thing is inside the ark of the covenant there was three items that would that would be in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant would have traveled with the people of Israel. And then and then you guys know the story, they would carry it, would lead them out into battle when when they when they, they built it here, right? Are they on the are they in the promised land at this point? In Exodus thirty twenty five, twenty six? Are they in the promised land? No. So that Joshua was going to lead them into the promised land later. And you remember the priests? They had to step their foot in the Jordan River? And what were they carrying? the Ark of the Covenant, right? And then, and then so they, they would, this tabernacle would be mobile. It would move with them everywhere that they went. And then later um, in their history, they get to King David and King David got excited. He was in his palace. He was looking outside and he saw that tent 
And he saw that, that whole, the, the Ark of the Covenant, all that stuff was there. And he said, man, I live in this palace and God is outside in this tent. I'm going to build God a house. And then God came to David and he said, David, I didn't ask you to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And he gives Davis that promise. And David was able to collect the materials for the temple, but he wasn't able to build it because his, he was a, his hands were bloody. And then his son Solomon, after him, built the temple that, that basically was there at the time of Jesus, rebuilt by Herod. Nehemiah and them came and rebuilt the walls and, and did some of the damage. And then Herod rebuilt it and fixed it. And so technically, the, the, I guess it was Herod's temple that would have been there in the day of Jesus in the same place where the, the temple was built. Um, all a picture of Jesus. All, all, all a picture of Jesus. Got to come back next week, I guess, and we'll get that picture of Jesus. Amen? All right, let's stand. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, we, 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 uh, we just thank you. We thank you for Jesus. And Lord, I pray, Father, for your will to be done. And Lord, I, I, uh, I pray, Lord, that if this message of giving that, that didn't um, really start out and tend to be so long, I wanted to get it to the temple and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. And yet, Lord, maybe for, for somebody in here, we need to hear that message, Lord, of just trusting you with our finances and trusting you in every area of our lives. And Lord, that we can't rob Peter to pay Paul. And Lord, by not trusting you and not giving of our first fruits and not giving abundantly and we're not going to we're not going to reap abundantly, and that um, as the word says, the 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 idea is that we're we're then putting it in a bag with holes in it, and we can't even keep it. We're trying to put it in a bag to keep for ourselves, and there's holes in that bag. And Lord, I pray, Father, that that, that each one, Lord, would give as He purposes in His own heart, that He would give uh, willingly and sparingly, or I mean uh, graciously, and Lord, that that You would bless, Lord God. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that, that we meet Jesus. And you said that you were going to meet and dwell with your people there. And that was upon the mercy seat, Lord, where you meet with us in mercy and in grace. We thank you for Jesus and his mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.